today we get to conclude a series that we've been looking at um, over the last uh, six weeks. This is the seventh week on uh, sanctification and self-talk. And uh, I have enjoyed the interaction I've had with many of you over the last number of weeks, um, getting emails and um, comments in hallways and over coffees. And uh, I did get an email that, uh, this past week um, uh, of a bumper sticker that was seen somewhere in the city of Nanaimo. Uh, and the bumper sticker said this. You don't have to believe everything you think. And I like that. You don't have to believe everything that you think. Uh, I think sometimes we, we get messed up in our, in our thoughts and uh, we think that they are um, the only order for our life. My main goal this morning is to provide a, uh, a biblical path or guideway for us as we wrap up this series on the sanctification of our self-talk. For the last six weeks, we have been considering this topic, and one of the first verses that I encourage you to memorize was um, from Psalm chapter 51, verse 6, you desire truth in our innermost being. Uh, This journey for me began a number of years ago as it um, uh, began by reading a, a few books and some authors that had made the connection between the quality of our life and our self-talk. Um, one in particular was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul. And that began a journey for me and I, in the last seven weeks, a a second journey to just kind of summarize my thinking for these last number of uh, uh, weeks. And self-talk is simply the inner dialogue that you have with yourself on on a constant basis. It's mostly nonverbal. It's mostly silent within your minds. But it is this constant conversation that we have with ourselves about any number of topics and issues. And sanctification is simply God's work in us to make us holy. That is God's desire and it is God's intent and it is God's purpose that he will bring about our holiness eventually in the end when we are glorified and are like Christ. My desire has been to at least show us from a different perspective that holiness of the mind matters. And so we've gone through just a number of scriptures along the way. We've looked in the book of Deuteronomy at uh, a number of passages that illustrated how we talk to ourselves in just some of the circumstances of day-to-day living. Four texts that we examine. And the end of the matter was simply that we realized this, that God is aware of our self-talk. In almost every one of those instances, it says that God says to them, when you find yourself in this situation or this circumstance, don't say this to yourself. So it tells us that God is aware of what we say in our hearts. Secondly, what we learn from those passages in Deuteronomy is that what we say matters. It matters to God because what we say to ourselves then influences our behaviors. And if it's sinful self-talk, then our behaviors will be sinful. And the third thing that we looked from those texts is that um, that we can change our self-talk as we learn to meditate on truth and as we learn to let Scripture be the filter for the things that we say to ourselves. We turned then from uh, Deuteronomy to the Psalms and we considered uh, Psalm 14, which was a text that reflected uh, on atheistic self-talk and uh, looked uh, at the danger, the terrible danger of saying in our heart that there is no God. And the implications of that then for that kind of thinking and how that works itself out then in our actions. Because one of the primary things that an atheist says to themselves is, I am not accountable to God. If there is no God, my actions don't, don't mean anything. 
And so when your actions are like that, then you have no restraints and you live as you want to live. Uh, from there, we jump to, I think, what was the most important message of, of the series, and, and I hope it's the thing that you understand most, most, is what differentiates biblical self-talk from any other kind of self-talk that you will hear out there. And there are a lot of legitimate ways of uh, changing our negative self-talk into positive self-talk, of changing our behaviors by modifying our thought process, processes. There's many legitimate things that may help you be, improve your sports success or your business success. But in the end of the day, they are not sanctifying your self-talk. We need the Spirit of God to do that. We need to be regenerated or born again by the Spirit. We need to be united with Christ in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. We need to understand that the goal of the sanctification of our self-talk is Christ-likeness. That is why we want to get a hold of what we say to ourselves, because we want to be transformed inside and out into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that if you, the only way that you can put to death the deeds of your body is through the Spirit of God at work in you. So it is absolutely crucial that when we get up on a day-to-day basis, we say, Spirit of God, would you help me today live in a way that is pleasing to you? From there, we jump to a passage in First uh, Samuel chapter 27. Look there at how David got himself into so much trouble. Because he ignored the truths and the promises of God that he knew and that had spoken to him, of him and spoken to him. And he made decisions in his own mind without taking into account God. And it led him into serious trouble. Last week, our final text was on Luke chapter 12, um, verses 12 to 21. And if, uh, if we could say that the most dangerous kind of self-talk you can embrace is atheistic self-talk. One of the most frequent topics of our self-talk has to do with money and possessions. And we looked at the the, the parable of the rich fool and how his self-talk was uh, a consequence of what he believed about God, what he believed about eternity, what he believed about his possessions, and how in the end he lost his soul. So today as we wrap it up, my whole goal today is then how do we handle our self-talk? You might have your own ways that you've already been dealing with this, but I thought it'd be helpful for us to try and summarize it in some um, memorable way, some process, some guide, some steps that we could think about in an easy way that would enable us to make progress in this task of sanctifying our self-talk. I have racked my brain for probably three or four weeks to come up with a catchy little phrase or a neat little acronym or something that I could give you. And, and as soon as you said it, you would, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I couldn't do it. And then on, uh, I think it was Thursday or Wednesday night, it hit me. And I thought, I'm going to steal what some, I'm going to borrow um, what somebody else did. And some of you attended a uh, apologetic seminar that we had here at the church a number of weeks ago, a great seminar. And um, the speaker, Alan Schliemann, used a, an image, which I thought, that's it. And it's the image of the hand and the fist. And so I am going to wrap six points around our fingers and our fist to help us remember a process, not the only one and certainly not the only comprehensive way, but a process that we can handily recall so that we can engage in this serious business of sanctifying our self-talk. So the very first one begins with a thumb and it's not a thumbs up, it's a thumbs down. It's a thumbs down, and that simply is this. Admit that your self-talk can be sinful. 
I am amazed at, uh, at how many people we've, we've chatted. And, and it's, it's not like a, a new revelation, but it's, it's been a helpful reminder that some of the things that we say to ourselves are sinful. John Stott puts it this way. Man's mind has shared in the devastating results of the fall. The total depravity of man means that every constituent part of his humanness has to some degree been corrupted, including our minds, which the scripture describes as darkened. We have to understand that the fall has darkened our minds. And if we want God's truth in our innermost beings, then we have to acknowledge that from time to time, the things that we say to ourselves and the conversations that we embrace are sinful. Remember Job, as Job prayed for his family, a, a beautiful passage for fathers to remember on behalf of their kids. After they feasted, he would get together and he would offer sacrifices and prayers to God on behalf of his children, lest they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. It's a reminder that we can sin with our self-talk. We get a picture of this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where God is looking down on the world that he has made and the earth that he has made and humankind. And it says that Lord, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Deuteronomy 59, as uh, Moses is speaking for God, says to the people, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. In another place we read from Mark chapter 7 verse 12 where he says that it's out of the, or, or from within, out of the heart of the man that come evil thoughts. So sanctification of our self-talk can only begin with a thumbs down when we admit that some of our self-talk can be sinful. This is one of the hardest tasks you will ever set yourself to because heart work is hard work. And this is uh, something that I uh, have been thinking about and rereading a book that I'll mention to you in a moment. But the author of this book writes, To get your heart broken for sin while you are confessing it and melted with the free grace while you are blessing God for it, to really be ashamed and humbled through the apprehensions of God's infinite holiness and to keep your heart in this frame, not only in but after duties, will surely cost you some groans and travailing pain of the soul. To kill the root of corruption within, to set and keep up on a holy government, government of your thoughts, to have all things lie straight and orderly in the heart, this is not easy. So, loved ones, we have to admit that some of our self-talk can be sinful. The second finger is the index finger. And uh, some of you may remember back in the days of the hippies and the Maranatha movement that when you held up your finger, it was one way. And so as I was thinking about that, well, there is only one way to deal with sinful self-talk in our lives, and that is to confess and repent. To come before God and to acknowledge the fact that not only do we sin, but then to confess it before Him, speak it to Him and say, this is what I was thinking, this is how I was rehearsing it in my mind, I understand it was evil and I repent of it, Father. And we take it before Him, we confess and we repent. That is the only way to deal with sin and even sinful self-talk in your life. We have looked at some of the ways in which our self-talk can be sinful as we nourish and cultivate fear or worry or hatred or lust or atheistic thoughts or covetousness or pride or disdain for the poor. All of those things are sinful and they need to be confessed of 
sins of our minds and sins of our self-talk and repented of it before God. I was fascinated because I just, I guess it's when your mind is thinking there, you read scripture in a different light. And I came to uh, James chapter one and was rereading James chapter one, um, verse 13 following. And it says there, let no one say when he is tempted, every one of us is tempted, but let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God can tempt no one with evil and he himself tempts no one. But then listen to this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. See, temptation starts with our thought life and with the way that we talk to ourselves about the things that we're thinking. And as we, instead of getting rid of those desires, we nourish them and we talk about them and we build them up and we plan and we, we strategize. And then he goes on and he says there, that then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and when, and then sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And so what we need to be about is, is we need to say, Father, you know how my desires have been sinful. You know how the conversations that I've been having with you about this person or about this situation or about this particular circumstance are not helpful or healthy. I confess of them. I repent of them. Help me change the patterns of thinking in my mind. It begins with the heart. No temptation has overtaken you that such that is common to man, but God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted, even in your mind, beyond what you are able, but will, with that temptation, will provide a way through it. Loved ones, we have to remember that that applies to our minds as well, that God will provide us a pathway through that temptation into victory. The third thing is the middle finger. It's the biggest finger. It's the most prominent finger. And it made sense to me then to say that we need to acknowledge the need of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The first one is thumbs down. Admit that sometimes our self-talk is sinful. The second is to acknowledge there's only one way to deal with that, and that's through confession and repentance. The third is through the middle finger, which reminds us of the prominence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As I've said, sanctification in any area of our life, including this area of our thought life and our self-talk, can only take place as we walk in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. I've said so many times to us, loved ones, that we cannot trust our hearts. We cannot trust ourselves to, to choose the right courses and make the right decisions because Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And so we need to go to Psalm uh, 139, as the psalmist says, and we go and we say, Spirit of God, at the beginning of the day, or Spirit of God at the end of the day, you know my heart. Try and test me and see if there be any wicked thoughts in me. We need to go to the Spirit, and as we're reading the Word of God, or thinking about it, or memorizing it, say, God, Spirit, I know that you have authored this Word, and that it is the living Word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Would you take it and apply it, not only to, to the outside of my life, but to the very thoughts and intentions of my heart? We need to say to the Spirit, Spirit, I know that any advance that I try and make in my own strength in the flesh will be futile because it is only through you, Spirit of God, that I can put to death the deeds of my body. Loved one, John Flavel hit the nail on the head of our need for the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. 
We are unable to stop the sun in its course or make the rivers run backwards as by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. We may may as well be our own saviors and our own keepers. The middle finger reminds us we cannot tackle the task of sanctification on our own. We need the Spirit of God. The fourth finger is the ring finger. And I, uh, it seemed to fit again there for me because it reminds us that we fight, uh, we, we fight for purity, or we need to fight for the purity of our self-talk. We need to fight for the purity of our self-talk. There's three texts that I want to just briefly um, leave with you. They're texts that I would encourage you to memorize if you haven't already memorized them. They're texts that I would encourage you to meditate on. If you, if, if you don't do that, I'd say make that your practice. But the first text is from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, and it is simply this, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4, 23 tells us, says this, keep your heart with all vigilance. Or above all things, guard your heart because from it flow the springs of life. Do you understand the importance of that? What the psalmist or the, the, what the writer of Proverbs is saying is that the heart, uh, the center of our thoughts, will, and emotions, that that guides and directs the course of our life. John Flavel, a, a Puritan writer back in the 1700s, uh, wrote a book, Keeping the Heart, which is a, it's a, it's an exposition of that verse alone. It's about 140 pages. It's a brilliant exposition of what it means to guard and keep the heart. But he takes time to press home the, uh, the, the importance of applying truth to our hearts. He says, remember that you are at the door of eternity. Those hours you spend upon heart work, In your closets are the golden spots of all your time and will have the sweetest influence upon your last hour. Heart work is heavy and difficult work. An error there may cost you your souls. I may say of it, as Augustine speaks of the doctrine of the Trinity, a man can err in nothing more easily or more dangerously. Oh, then, study your heart. Study your heart. As I've said before, the heart is the center of our personality. It's the orientation of all good and evil that drives all of our thoughts, our decisions, and feelings. The heart is who we are when our masks are off. The heart is who we really and truly are. It's who God sees us as. We may have a great reputation, but our heart can, 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 can reveal a reality that is so far removed from our reputation. A number of weeks ago, I was driving down to Victoria listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg. A great sermon. Uh, I can't remember the text. Um, oh, it was on David and Goliath. But he was talking there about the, the importance of closing the gap between our reputation and our reality. And he, he talks about that that's one of the goals of the Christian life, is we all have a reputation, what people know about us, what people see about us, what people think about us, something that we've built out b- up by our lifestyles. But then we all have a reality, who we really are, what we really are like. And often that reality and that reputation are different. And he says the goal of the Christian life is to increasingly shrink that distance so that reality and reputation are almost the same. What do we do with our heart? He says here, well, we are to place it under guard. 
We are to, we are to restrain what, what, what happens in our heart, like we might restrain a prisoner, or like we might guard something that was valuable and something that needed to be protected. Uh, there are two pictures that can be applied there, or that can help us understand that. Sometimes we guard something to prevent others from getting in. We, we, we might guard a city or we might guard a fortress because we don't want the enemy to get in. And so as Christians, we guard our hearts from the influence of the world. We guard our hearts from the influence of the evil one, from the things that we watch, from the things that we see, from the things that we read, from the music that we listen to. We guard our hearts. But there's also uh, importance, and, and some cities were overtaken by this because they were careful to watch the outside, but they weren't watching the citizens that had become traitors within. And so the city was taken because they weren't watching inside. And we read, remember from Mark chapter 7, verse 21, that from the heart, out of the heart, come evil thoughts and desires. And so we also have to guard our heart from those treacherous, traitorous thoughts that come from within us. And so he says, above all, guard your hearts. Preserve it from sin. We, we know many ways of doing this, um, but we do it because uh, the scripture tells us that our very life, the quality and the health of our life flows from it. Everything that we do is connected with our heart. Everything exits the heart. Do you understand that? Everything that we do, everything that we say exits the heart. The heart is the source of the body's activities. The heart directs your mind, your speech, your hands, your feet, your eyes. As another person put it, the heart is the treasury, the hand and the tongue, but the shops. What is in the shops comes from the treasury. The hand and the tongue always begin where the heart ends. There's a great image to have in our minds as we think about why we need to guard our heart. Because it's our heart that influences everything that we say and that we do. The same writer said, The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Loved ones, above all else, guard your hearts. Because from it flow the wellsprings of life. The second uh, text in uh, the purity, in fighting for the purity of, uh, uh, of our of our self-talk is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and it's also a battle or a siege sort of image or picture. It's there, we do, it's take your thoughts captive. You can do that. As that, that, that bumper sticker said, you don't have to believe everything that you think. And so we need to take our thoughts captive. This is, this is an application from a text that you need to go on your own and study sort of and understand what the text means. I'm leaving that out and I'm jumping to an application. But the text um, starts really at verse 4 to 6. And in there, the Apostle Paul is describing an image that every reader would have known. It was an image of siege warfare. And, and all their cities would have been walled cities with great battle protection, um, protect, protections. And because there was always the threat of warfare. And one of the most common kinds of warfare was siege warfare. Where they would come and they would lay siege against the city. They would build up ramparts. They would block the city off from water and food and all those kinds of things. And eventually um, a, a wise general would win. And when they would win, they would, they would rush into the city, they would take a bunch of people captive, and anybody who disobeyed or wouldn't submit, they were punished with death. 
And so Paul is using that imagery to tell us how we ought to deal with philosophies and psychologies and religious camps and worldly wisdom and thinking that is opposed to God and truth. We have to sort of put a siege up around it and we have to crush that down. We have to take those thoughts captive. And I would say we should destroy any thought that won't submit to the truth of, of the word of God or to the, to, to, to the application of the spirit in our hearts and lives. And so we take those thoughts captive. And Paul says at the beginning of this, he says, I'm like everybody else. I have flesh and blood. And so we acknowledge that, that we are in this battle with, with sort of flesh and blood. But Paul says to him there that the weapons of our war- warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human inventions. We will never attack our thought lives and those things that have built up fornications in our, in our mind with worldly wisdom. He says the only way you will deal with it is of weapons of divine power that destroy strongholds. And the one main weapon that stands out more than any is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Loved ones, we need to take the Word of God and again and again and again use it as a siege work against those fortifications in our mind that are causing us to say things and have conversations that are displeasing to God. The key to being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient at wielding the sword of the word of God against the lies that we tell ourselves. In the third text, again about the purity of our heart, or purity of our of our self-talk, is from Philippians chapter four, verse eight. We need to dwell on what is excellent and praiseworthy. It seems like simple stuff, but we see we have such a hard time doing it. Finally, brothers. And we could say sisters, because it's a phrase that takes into account brethren and sisters. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That's an amazing thing. How do you train your mind? How do you sanctify your self-talk? Where do you shop for your thoughts? What thoughts do you pull off the shelves of the store of your mind that that then feeds your self-talk? Well, Paul is saying, in a sense, restock those shelves. Like, get rid of the, the junk and the garbage and the stuff that's outdated and put stuff which is biblical and which is right and which is true there. The shopping list that Paul gives here is intended to be representative, but it's a great place for us to start. And then he broadens the scope even by saying that anything that is of moral excellence, anything that brings praise to God, put that on the shelf of your mind. Think on that. Dwell on that. Rehearse that over and over again in your heads. One said that true peace can only be ours when our minds are properly filled. Isn't that a beautiful... uh, True peace can only be ours... When our minds are properly filled. The point in Philippians is, is, is the, the, to take us to a store which, from which we can furnish our minds. Things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. A mind full of these things, one writes, will leave little room for anxiety producing, peace disrupting, and joy destroying thoughts. 
think on these things. The fifth is the little finger. Here we've got the thumb, thumbs down, which means that we need to acknowledge that sometimes our self-talk can be sinful. This means what? Confess and repent. It's the only way to deal with sinful self-talk. The middle finger is the most prominent one, and it reminds us of what? Our need for the Holy Spirit. The ring finger reminds us of what? Purity of our thinking. The fifth one, then, is we need to learn to renew our minds. This is just a re-emphasis of what we've been talking about. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, I'll just read verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you know that you worship God with your minds? Do you know that the last thing I would want any of us to do when we come into this building is to check your minds out when you come in those doors? It is critical that we learn to worship God with our thinking and with our minds. How do we renew our minds? Well, we renew our minds in the same way that we take thoughts captive by wielding correctly the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you want to know what that looks like, take 33 minutes, 34 minutes, and read Psalm 119. An amazing psalm in which in almost every verse, one of the longest chapters in the Bible, there is a reference to the Word of God. Understand what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Understand that there are those times when we need to take a work of God or a characteristic of God and we need to meditate on it. We need to rehearse it. We need to mull it over. We need to turn it upside down in our, in our hearts and our minds. When, when we know that God is called Jehovah Jireh and our finances are low or something's not there to remember that God will provide, that God is our provider, that God knows our needs, that God is good, that God will supply all, all our needs according to his riches and glory. Rehearse those things over and over in your mind till the truth of the word of God renews your thinking. Take the truths of scripture And apply them to your self-talk. The sixth one and the final one, which is our fist, it's prayer. Prayer is what unites all of these things together. Hebrews 4, 16 says so clearly, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help or grace to help in the time of need. Next week, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, starting at the book of Hebrews. And I am so looking forward to that book because our confidence in life comes from knowing that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so as we go into this throne room of God, as we go in there, we go in confidence because Jesus, our high priest, has made it a clear way for us. We go into the throne. It's a throne that is occupied by no one less than the king of this world, the king of this universe, God. 
the creator of heaven and earth. And so we, we go in in the confidence of Christ. We go into the very presence of God who is on that throne. We go there seeking mercy because we all know that we are flesh and blood and we sin on such a regular basis. And so we go, though, in confidence, not in ourselves, not in our goodness or in our badness, but in our high priest, Jesus Christ, to God who has allowed us to come in for his presence. We receive mercy there because we know that we can make it with the help of God. And as we think about prayer, loved ones, we we think about it knowing that we don't pray by ourselves. I don't know what goes through your minds, but I do know that sometimes it is sinful. I know what goes through my mind, and I know the self-talk that I engage and embrace in, and I know sometimes that it scares me. And so as I pray about it, as I take it before God, I know that not, not only am I praying, but it says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you know that when you go into that throne room, that on the right hand of the Father is Christ, and it says that He ever lives to make intercession for us. That He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're battling with. He knows those conversations. And He is pleading your case also before God. But He does it perfectly. And then, not only that, but if you've ever had those times where in despair... You don't think you can, you can change. You don't think you can alter. You don't think you can purify. And yet then we read about the Holy Spirit who is also praying for us. That the scripture tells us that, that when those times that we are overwhelmed and we don't really know what to say and we don't know how to articulate our needs, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What an encouragement, loved ones. And you go before the throne of grace that you are not alone. You're not praying alone. And even if you can't articulate your needs, the Spirit of God can articulate it. And even if you don't know how to pray perfectly, Christ, your brother, is praying perfectly for you. So as I wrap it all up in my head, then my prayer would be something like this, Father, keep me ever aware of my sinful self-talk. When it comes to my mind, help me to confess it and repent of it. Spirit of God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. As I start this day, as I walk through this day, as I end this day, help me be led by you. Help me walk in your footsteps. Father, give me a heart and a mind that I guard and take wrong thoughts captive. Help me renew my thinking With your word, let your thoughts shape my self-talk. There's a beautiful prayer that David prays um, as he's about to turn over the reins of building the temple to his son Solomon. It's a long prayer, but there's a little section in it that, that I found so helpful. As he's praying, he says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and mind and have pleasure in uprightness. I love that. See what David's saying? He's saying, I know you test my heart and mind and you have pleasure in uprightness. Where? Uprightness in my heart and mind. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the heart of your people. What purposes and thoughts? Uprightness. Father, keep them forever in the forefront of the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. What if we all as a congregation prayed that way for one another in this church? 
that God would direct our thoughts towards him and keep them forever before him. Thumbs down. Acknowledge that our self-talk can be sinful. Forefinger, acknowledge that we need to confess and repent when the Spirit lays it on our heart. Thirdly, we need to daily express our dependence on the Spirit of God. Fourthly, we need to work at the purity of our thoughts. Fifthly, we need to renew our minds with the Word of God. And finally, we need to unite them all together in prayer as we go on this journey to have God complete this work of sanctification in us.